Let's pray. Lord, as we come into worship and as we enter into your word, many of us come, Lord, and, and we're dealing with seasons of difficulty and challenges, sadness, hardships, and we carry that in with us this morning, Lord, and we need your grace and mercy applied to these realities. We need your grace and mercy to be poured out in abundance, and so we ask for that. We ask that as we open your word, as we look, as we read, would your spirit be present and compassionate to us in showing us Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. The mission statement of Gospel Life Church is rooting all of life in the good news of Jesus for his glory and the city's good. So rooting all of life in the gospel, right? This is not just, I think it's important to say, right? What the New Testament calls the gospel, that's what we're supposed to be rooting all of our lives into. This isn't just a, a catchphrase. It's not just an organizational slogan that we repeat because then it'll be good for you guys to repeat and we're all on the same page with a slogan and a direction. It's not what this is. It's not sloganeering. It's not talking points. This is how the New Testament describes transformation. This is how the scriptures at large describe what it looks like for our lives to be changed and transformed and to live according to it. That at the center of our lives, this is what gospel-centeredness really means. At the center of our lives, like the, the hub at the center of a wheel, is the gospel. It's the good news. But then from that, that gospel stretches out like that hub in the wheel. It stretches out in every direction, in all directions, everywhere into the Christian life, into the Christian existence for us to apply that gospel. And that's the way that we grow, for us to shake out the implications of that gospel, root all of life in that gospel. And we see an example of that in the text this morning. We see a teaching of how, you know, what difference does Jesus make? How far does he extend into our troubles and into our difficulties? We see it in the text. Um, one of the best new resources that I've um, seen recently in retelling John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, for children is the illustrated Little Pilgrim's Progress, written by Helen Taylor. And I, I would commend this to parents of young children who want to get these ideas and get the same story across to your kids. It portrays the characters as these little furry woodland creatures, like bunnies and badgers. And this version also lends itself well to illustrations for sermons because it's so concise in terms of the time. So as the story goes, Christian, the main character in Bunyan's classic, a young man, or a bunny in this case, leaves his former home in the city of destruction after coming to believe that there's a king in the celestial city a king who cares about him, a king who loves him, wants to pursue this king, coming to realize his need of that king, coming to realize that he's due judgment, thanks to this work of a friend named Evangelist who comes into the city of destruction and, and shares truth with him. And so Christian runs to the narrow path to begin his journey, carrying this large burden, running to the light that's at the base of the narrow path, and he runs into another person on the path named Pliable on his journey. And the story unfolds in Helen Taylor's retelling this way. Pliable says, I wonder how long it'll take us to get to the celestial city. Did you ask evangelist? We might walk a little faster, I think. I wish I could, 
sighed little Christian, who is tired already. I'm afraid I shall be a very long time on the way. It is this burden which is so heavy that makes me walk slowly. Suddenly, Pliable's feet sank deep in the grass, and he saw that he'd actually walked into a marsh that lay in the part of the plain. Oh, cried he, where are we now? I don't know, said poor little Christian, whose burden made him sink deeper into the soft green mud. But the boys were frightened and confused. And they could not tell which was the way out of the marsh. It was called the Slough of Despond. And it was a dangerous place. Every step the children took seemed to lead them further into it. And at last, Pliable grew very angry. See what a mess we're in, he said. And it's all your fault. I wish I had not come. If this is the beginning of our journey, what else may we expect on the road? Just let me get out of this horrible marsh and I shall go straight home again. You may look for the city by yourself. Little Christian did not answer, for he was too frightened and too unhappy to speak. His clothes and fur were covered with mud, and every moment he feared he would be smothered in the slough. How he wished that evangelist would come to help him, but he could not see anyone near to him. Far away across the plain shone the light above the narrow gate, and behind him lay the city of destruction. Pliable turned away from the light. And at last, then succeeded in getting out of the marsh, but he never stopped to help his companion. And when little Christian looked back, he saw Pliable running home as fast as he could. Oh, how desolate the poor little boy felt when Pliable was out of sight. I'm so small, he thought, and so stupid. I cannot even get safely across this plain. And what should I do if I come to a high mountain or a deep river? But just at that moment, a squirrel named Help, who was one of the king's servants, came near. Don't be frightened. I shall be able to reach you in a minute. The king will always take care of you. I wondered why he sent me over the plain today, but it was because he knew that you would need me. Take hold of my hand. So, okay, so in this retelling, we find some of the central themes that Bunyan wanted to get across in his original story, which is essentially the reality that, that all Christians must first recognize to even become a Christian. What all Christians must first recognize related to their inability to do what's required of them. In other words, once trapped in the slough of despond, the only way out, and there's two choices, the only way out was to either turn back, turn away from the celestial city and go back to, to destruction and darkness, or to cry out for mercy and recognize, can't do it, can't do it, right? And so this becomes the first of many lessons for Christian. Christian's unable to do this for himself. He couldn't get out on his own strength. He's confronted with his neediness, you know. But as we also see in the story, that neediness can lead us to despair. The slew of despond is what Bunyan called this. After all, like, listen, if this is something that I'm unable to do for myself, if I can't save myself, if I can't help myself, that can lead to a certain sense of hopelessness. Like, it's, it's hard for me to think about what it might look like to trust someone else entirely. So it's a lot easier for me to try to take, take matters into my own hands, right? At least then maybe I think I, I might have a fighting chance, but upon realization I'm unable to do this for myself. What hope is there? 
And that's precisely the question our text this morning sets out to answer. Because here in in John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21, we see three realities. If you look, I've included this in the liturgy packet. If you're taking notes too, three realities about the person of Jesus that help us deal with despair. You know, who is this Jesus who offers hope and distress? Can he be trusted? These are the kinds of questions we're setting out to to answer. So we begin three realities beginning in uh, verses 16 and 17. So set your eyes with me there. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got in a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So we need to get a reminder of some context here. So last week we saw there's this large crowd, huge crowd, 20,000 people, 5,000 men and their families, right? Others who are with them. Following Jesus. And they're following Jesus because they saw all these signs that he's performing. And Jesus has compassion on them, despite the fact that he knows what's in their hearts, despite the fact that he knows that they're more interested in the stuff Jesus offers and the signs that he's doing than Jesus himself, Jesus the way he's disclosing it himself to them. He has compassion despite that. He desires to teach them something more about who he is. So he performs another great sign, feeding the 5,000 and their families. But the text ends with Jesus withdrawing. If you look back at verse 15, he withdraws from the crowd. Why? Well, the text tells us he perceives they're about to come and take him by force and make him their king because despite the fact that Jesus is desiring to teach them more about who he is, they won't receive Jesus on Jesus' terms. Do you remember? They only want Jesus on their terms, which is this worldly king who can gather a military force against the Romans, free people from oppression. And so if you're interested in that, I invite you to go back and listen to last week's text. But um, so Jesus withdrew. The disciples go down to get on a boat now. They they know where their next destination is on their itinerary. They don't know when Jesus is going to rejoin them in this journey. So I'm going to have more to say in a moment about verse 16 and the beginning of 17. But for now, let's focus on the circumstances just broadly. Okay, so They're heading across the sea together at night. And the author adds these words. And I would really say, this is the main emphasis of the circumstances in the story. Here they are. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. This is John's focus. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So here we see our first reality about Jesus in the text. The absence of Jesus is spiritual darkness. The absence of Jesus is spiritual darkness. That is to say, listen, okay, this is what happened. John is recounting events as they took place. We've had this conversation a lot. The text is describing the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and this is one of those events. But in normal fashion for John, he's recounting these events with the desire to say something even more about who Jesus is to his Um, agnostic and spiritually seeking readers in the first century. He wants to say something about who this Jesus is, why his readers need him so badly. In a lot of ways, this text is beginning with something of a merciful warning to the readers of John's gospel. 
Do we remember how John uses this imagery of darkness and light, night and day? John chapter 1, right? The world was in utter darkness without, without God. Because of our sin and rebellion, because we were without the presence of God, because we, we fled light into darkness, thinking the darkness was light, essentially. We're going to have more to say on that this morning. But what does John say? In Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. And we talked about this a lot too, so bear with me again. But do we remember when Nicodemus visits Jesus? He comes by night under cover of darkness. Not because John wants to emphasize how ashamed Nicodemus is or how he wants to keep it on the DL. You know, he does it because he wants to show us something about what's happening in Nicodemus's heart. When does Judas run out to betray Jesus? The text concludes, as we'll see by saying, and it was night, it was darkness. Okay. I'm not trying to beat a dead horse by bringing this up as many times as I have in this text, and we'll continue to talk about it. But the idea here, repeatedly, is that apart from Christ, we are in darkness. Like, think about how darkness is defined. Darkness is defined as the absence of light, right? So, so how do we define spiritual darkness? The absence of Jesus. That's the definition of spiritual darkness darkness. We might think we see, we might think we've adapted so well to the dark as far as we're concerned that we're more comfortable there, but our lives are characterized by darkness apart from Christ. We think we can save ourselves. We think we can manage. And because of our selfishness, because we put ourselves so often at the center, because we're relying on ourselves and other things that can't bear that way to save us, all kinds of chaos rushes out from that as a result. All kinds of evil all kinds of twisted manipulation, right? So we're in darkness without Christ. That's the word that John uses to describe the state of our hearts naturally without God's presence. And we're going to see more evidence of that in just a moment. Even in the introduction, what does Pliable do, right? What does Pliable do here when he is confronted by his great need? He turns away from the light because it's easier and he turns away from the light and goes back to the darkness. Because it's easier in so many ways to be comfortable living in the darkness, because at least I kind of know it, than it is for me to expose myself to the light and see how much I need Jesus. So the first reality about Jesus that Christians must come to grips with in order to even be Christians, really, is that the absence of Jesus is spiritual darkness. We have great need of Christ. We have unique need of Jesus and that's why we planted a church. You know, by way of reminder to us, like, this is why we have a vision for meaningfully and relationally engaging with non-believing people. Our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, family members who, who don't know Christ, the absence of Jesus is spiritual darkness. By his mercies, we know light. By his mercies, we want our friends and neighbors and coworkers to also know Christ, to have that the light of Christ in their life. Our desire is to introduce them to the one who can and will bring them out of the darkness. But that's what leads us now to the second reality about Jesus in the text. Okay, so the absence of Jesus is spiritual darkness. But now look at verses 18 and 19. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near to the boat, and they were frightened. 
Okay, so I said a few minutes ago, we'd spend some time on verse 16, the beginning of verse 17, and talk a little bit about this voyage into the Sea of Galilee, where the disciples were, where the disciples are going, because I think it's helpful to get at least a basic level understanding of what's happening here in the narrative and to, to get some idea of seafaring in first century Israel. All right, when we say the Sea of Galilee, we really need to put things in perspective. Because when we hear Sea of Galilee, the first thing we have an image of is, well, of a sea, right? Which is like this massive body of water. When we hear, as we've said before in our teaching, talking about the Sea of Galilee, that this is the largest freshwater body of water in, in Israel, the freshwater lake in Israel, we tend to have the same kind of issue because as Minnesotans, our largest freshwater body of water is ridiculously bigger than the Sea of Galilee. You know? Lake Superior is 160 miles at its widest point. Even Lake Mille Lacs is 18 miles long. Sea of Galilee is 13 miles from north to south, eight miles east to west. And, and actually at the tip of the Sea of Galilee where the disciples are traveling across, this is really only about a five mile journey. So this isn't like, it's not a day's long voyage. They're getting in a boat, looking to cross the other side. They're going to row across about five miles. Now, but we might think, so what's the problem? <laughs> you know? But having said that, using a fishing boat to sail five miles at night across the Sea of Galilee was a uniquely challenging event, you guys. We've talked about it a little bit before. Paul Burr has mentioned it too. This lake is about 600 feet below sea level. So cool air can rush in and displace the warm air over the lake and bring about just these really nasty, routinely destructive storms on the lake. But compounding the problem, making these storms even worse, are the mountains that are over on the eastern rim of the lake where the disciples are actually leaving. And this wind would, and still does, whip through the mountain passes to the sea, creating even worse problems, right? Um, causing much larger swells of waves and water for a typical lake of this size. So this isn't just, you know, sailing across Mille Lacs, right? Perhaps this is one of the many reasons why the Jewish people throughout their history associated the sea with chaos and disorder. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, the sea comes to routinely represent power, powerful, disruptive, unpredictable, unpredictable forces that causes chaos, danger. It comes to represent the forces of evil because the people of Israel really, like, they were... They had anxiety about the sea. There was fear of the sea. This is one of the many reasons why, just as an aside, the Mormon idea that the ancient Jews built boats and sailed to America is frankly a ridiculous notion. The idea that people in first century Israel would, a non-seafaring people to say the least, would build boats and sail across the ocean is just not rooted in reality. So these are not a seafaring people, and we find one example this morning in the call to worship that Paul Burr so helpfully read for us, Psalm 65, 5 through 8. I'm just going to read part of it. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring seas. Listen to this. The roaring seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples. So, this is parallelism, the roaring of the waves for the author. He's, he's saying the same thing as the tumults, the difficulties, the hardships 
of the peoples. That's the same thing. It represents, one represents the other. And now notice who this psalm is about, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. Listen, by the time we get to John 6, it should be pretty clear. The psalmist is pointing us forward to the person of Jesus who would come to do the very thing the psalmist is describing here. And he comes to do these signs to point forward to himself, to say that this is, this is me, right? But the point further made in this narrative isn't just that Jesus performed the sign. You know, this is a lot like what we talked about last week with the bread. He's not just doing a good deed. He's not just demonstrating his power in one particular setting. He's showing us something about the nature of who he is and what he's come to do, right? The, that, that, first of all, the absence of Jesus is spiritual darkness. But now, by walking on the storm at sea, walking on enormous wave after enormous wave on his way to the disciples, we discover that the sovereignty of Jesus controls the chaos, secondly. The sovereignty of Jesus controls the chaos. And there's a couple of different things that I mean by this. There's a couple of different ways that he does this. First, on the more obvious note, it means that Jesus has power over the chaos. He has power over it. He's stronger than any tumult of the peoples. Any circumstances in which you are living, Jesus is stronger than that circumstance. Why are we living in the midst of chaos? We talked about this already a little bit. We put ourselves at the center. By nature, because of sin, because of rebellion against God, we're selfish people. We put ourselves first. It's very difficult to go through life without doing that. And so when we did that, when we end around at God and, 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 and tried to be God, this flows, all this chaos flows out. Human sin, we thought we knew better than God about how to be God. We attempted to displace him. We set ourselves out against him as enemies. We rebelled against the good king and we ran into the darkness thinking it was light, thinking it was light. We're in chaos because this world that was created by a good God was marred by human sin. It was marred by God's absence from us. The Apostle Paul writes, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We experience hardships and suffering and death on this side of eternity. There is chaos in this world as it stands now. And Jesus has power over it. He works in ways that alleviate the pain of his people, give them hope in the midst of chaos, and can even intervene in the midst of that chaos because he's the one who's in charge. But it's, it's more than this. You know, when I say the sovereignty of Jesus controls the chaos, I also mean that the chaos in this world isn't outside of God's control. That's to say, look, yes, he has power over it. Yes, he can do something about it. But he's also sovereign over it in the, in the, in the sense that he uses this very chaos that we created by our own sin to bring about his good purposes. And we saw this in Genesis. By the time we get to chapter 50 and all the chaos from Joseph's life, the evil and wickedness intended by his brothers, but what they intended for evil, the text tells us, God intended for good. He's, he's at work using these to bring about his good purposes. In other words, God isn't just able by his power Jesus isn't just able by his power to see the disciples from miles away struggling against the storm, which is how Mark's gospel puts it. 
You know, he onto the water, displaying his power over it, but he's actually here using the storm to bring about faith and dependency on him, on who he is. He's in control of everything. He's not surprised. In the midst of our difficulties and trials and sadness and, and heartache, he's not surprised. He's not caught off guard. He's not somehow worried that things might not go as they should. He's in the business of bringing ultimate redemption and restoration. And he uses these circumstances, even, even the bad ones, to bring about his purposes. He's in control. The sovereignty of Jesus truly controls the chaos. How? How does he do that? Well, this is where we finally see, thirdly, the presence of Jesus alleviates fear, brings ultimate peace. The presence of Jesus alleviates fear and brings ultimate peace. So look at verses 20 to 21. We see a reversal in a lot of ways from what happened in 16 and 17. Now we see the reversal of that. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So the disciples were terrified. They're terrified. And there does appear to be a couple of different reasons for their terror, according to what the other accounts have shared about these events. They were terrified of the storm itself, and for good reason, that they wouldn't make it to the western side of the lake because the storm had whipped up seemingly out of nowhere, just like they would and still do. And now they're terrified because they see this, in the midst of that storm, where they think they're going to die, they see this figure walking toward them on the lake. You know, um, the response makes perfect sense. The response of terror makes perfect sense. Mark's account includes here that they thought he was a ghost. Probably the, what they're thinking, I think it was Osborne that said something like this, but their thought process is something along the lines of, that must be a ghost, just like we're going to be in a minute, you know? But John's point isn't actually to give us a specific reason for their terror, you know? John, John's account of this is smaller than Mark's, so Mark's probably came first, but actually, typically what we see is Mark's account comes first, it's smaller, and we see um, more given in some of the other, the, the other gospel accounts. Not here. Actually, what we find is Mark's account comes first, but it's more detailed. John omits... John has a very small, disciplined uh, retelling of this. And that's because he wants to say something very specific. Remember, he told us the very first week we read, he's left certain things in and he's omitted certain things. He can't just put everything in, right? Because the, the account would be way too long, way too long. So he, what he's sharing, he's sharing very much on purpose. And here, he, he wants, he doesn't care about as much what's making them afraid. He doesn't include a lot of detail on giving the reason for their fear. His desire is to give a reason for why their fear was alleviated. That's his focus, right? He's not as focused on giving a reason for their fear as he is on giving the reason their fear is alleviated. That's, that's what he wants to do. This leaves a lot out. There's no dialogue to speak of if you look at the text except for these words from Jesus. And so these words from Jesus, I would say, really become the center of the narrative. It is I. Do not be afraid. So the only spoken words in the text, it is I. Do not be afraid. There's a lot to be said about these words, it is I. Too much for our short time together, but I can tell you 
that we're going to get a lot of opportunities to talk more about these words, it is I, in the weeks ahead. And you'll see why in a minute. We have an introduction to it right now because John introduces us to this phrase for the very first time, to these words for the first time. But then later on, this phrase will return again and again and again throughout John's gospel account. Right? And so maybe the best way to, to explain this is, okay, so some people, some people have a hard time with the location of this miracle. And when I say location, I don't mean the geography of it. That makes sense, because they were on the eastern side, they need to get over to the western side of the Sea of Galilee. When I say location, I mean in John's narrative. So Jeremy, you just said that John omits things, right, that he doesn't need that are unnecessary to his telling of the story. A lot of people push back on this account and they say, so why didn't John just omit this? You know, because like, look, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with bread. If you look at your text, John 6, 1 through 15. Then he has this teaching that starts in 622 where he tells the people, I am the bread of life. And since John tends to organize things in a way where a miracle from Jesus is often intentionally placed alongside of some teaching from Jesus that reinforces what he's trying to say, telling us something about the nature of who he is, we think to ourselves, man, Look at this connection between Jesus feeding the 5,000, providing them bread, showing himself to be the true and better Elisha who multiplied the barley loaves, the true and better manna from heaven, the, the true bread, and then him saying, the true provision for Israel, and then him saying, I am the bread of life. And we see that connection very clearly. That's rather obvious, but why on earth is, is this walking on water narrative seemingly just forced right in between these two things, like just these short few verses. Is this a later developed tradition that found its way into the manuscript that wasn't part of it? No. No, it's in all the earliest manuscripts, every other manuscript tradition that I'm aware of. And I'd argue that it's not forced. It actually serves two purposes for the reader. The first one is to give an account of how the disciples and Jesus get from the eastern shore to the western shore, like... Ties together the framework of the story, tells us what's happening along the way. But look, that's not the only thing John's interested in doing. And actually, he's almost never interested in just doing that. If he was, he's already said his account would be way, way, way too long. Right. He's very disciplined. He's not just doing that. So why, why does he include it? Because here he's introducing the I am language that he's going to use throughout his, his account. This I am language that Jesus teaches and uses over and over and over again. Let me explain. Jesus says here, it is I. It is I. He's announcing his presence to his disciples, right? It makes sense in the narrative. You know, on the one hand, so this is a very appropriate translation of the words that you'll find in the ESV and NIV. Most other translations have some kind of a variation of, of this. It is I. It's very appropriate. It's appropriate because these words could regularly be used by people to announce their presence to others, to say, hey, it's me. That makes sense in the story because those words themselves, they bring comfort to the disciples, right? Like, the words don't, don't matter in one sense. It's like Jesus isn't speaking some kind of magical incantation over them in which the power of the words makes them feel better. It's not like Harry Potter where he speaks some kind of fear alleviation spell and... You know, like, oh, we feel better. 
It's Jesus saying it is I that makes them feel better. Some other, you know, a ghost saying it is I would not have made them feel better, right? But the fact that they see and recognize it's him. This is what brings an alleviation from fear. It's the person who's saying it. It's the power of his presence that John wants us to understand. And so this is an appropriate way to translate it. On the other hand, these words are conveying something more. Please, again, just bear with me for a second. So I really do try and interact with the Greek text each week. It's very helpful for me in explaining the passage and structuring the passage and seeing what words modify what words and all that. But I don't like, as I preach, to specifically reference a lot of Greek words in sermons because sometimes it, I think, for a few different reasons, but at least one of them is a main one. Sometimes it makes people think that in order to understand your Bibles, you have to know Greek, which you don't. You know, it's just not true. I want to encourage you, even before I get here, that like you have good, reliable English translations at your disposal that really do convey the meaning of the original text and that the Spirit uses to show you Christ. It's true. So English Standard Version, New International Version, Christian Standard Bible, New American Standard Bible, King James Version, and others that are, that are good translations. People often come to me and they're like, what translation should I use, Jeremy? And, you know, I've got, I've got my favorites, right? And I've got my reasons for it. But typically my answer is the one that you read. The, the one that you'll read. The one that you'll pick up and read, that's the translation you should use. Because these are all good, reliable translations. But I need to break my rule here for a minute. Because here we see a construction in the Greek that will appear over and over and over again. And I'm going to reference it again. Ego me. That's these, these words. It is I. Ego me. Literally, it means I am. Ego, I, me, form of to be, I am. Ego me. It can be translated, it is I, as the ESV does here. It was used that way in the first century by people. But the literal expression is I am. And John uses this expression for the first time in his gospel account. He introduces the expression here, but we'll routinely, routinely see it more developed in weeks ahead. Jesus will tell us, starting next week, expressions like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. He'll tell us in chapter 8, Tell us in chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. And you know what happens? The Jews pick up stones to stone him for saying this. Why? Because he's making himself equal with God, something that we've already talked about in John and we'll have to deal with increasingly as we go. He's making himself equal with God because I am is the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh, introducing himself to Moses at the burning bush, saying, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. Sent me to you. And now, Jesus is standing before his disciples and declaring in the midst of the storm, Ego me. Ego me. I am. I am. The one who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush is now standing before you. The God of your fathers has become human flesh to save you. Grant Osborne takes, the late great Grant Osborne, professor of mine at Trinity, takes more, a little bit more umbrage at the translation than I do, 
but he helpfully writes this to give us a full picture. He says, it is probably better to see it as John did, saying, the I am is here, or I, Yahweh, am here. Jesus is identifying himself as very God of very God, as the Nicene Creed would later put it, as he also does in the I am passages. Needless to say, the only proper conclusion is his command, don't be afraid, right? The only proper conclusion, if that's the I am standing on the waves of the storm, the only right conclusion is to not be afraid anymore. We see this highlighted even more circumstances that nobody else could possibly bring. So yes, the presence of Jesus alleviates fear, but it also brings ultimate peace. Um, reading these verses again, but he said to them, it is I, so I am, do not be afraid, then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. <clears throat> a final miracle is performed here, actually in verse 21. Yes, he walks on water, but so we see what happens next. They're out to sea in the midst of the storm. And when Jesus, you know, they're, they're glad to bring him into the boat. And when Jesus enters the boat, they find themselves suddenly safe on land. It brings to mind Psalm 107. 29 to 30, which I also would have accepted from Paul Burr this morning. If it was anything other than Psalm 65 or, or 107, I send it back. No, not really. Okay. But the psalmist writes this. He writes this. He says, He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Jesus brings them in the text to their desired haven. They're glad to bring them into the boat, and immediately they find themselves safe on land again. He makes it possible for them to be relieved of the storm. How? By his very presence, by the presence of the I am. Really what we see is a reversal of verses 16 and 17, as I said before. So whereas the absence of Jesus brought about darkness, because that's just what darkness is, right? It's the absence of light. So whereas... In his absence is spiritual darkness. In his presence is the alleviation of everything that darkness brought. We're now able to stand in the storm without despair. Not because our circumstances are necessarily different, but rather because our circumstances are ultimately not what make us feel the way we feel. And we talk about that at Gospel Life Church a lot, but I think it's a common misconception. We think it's our circumstances that make us feel the way we feel, that make us respond the way we respond, but it's really not. It's the degree to which we have hope. It's about the hope that we have that God is in control, that a good God who can be trusted is in control, and that he will bring ultimate peace through the storm. The question is, how can we know that it's true, right? Because really, the disciples' fear gets alleviated because they believe that he's there, that it's him, right? And they don't have a full understanding of what Jesus means when he says that he is the I am yet. But if you believe that the I am is present, that the God who created this world, who breathed it into existence, is present, and even he's, he's sovereign over the chaos, and through it he's working to bring about good purposes, and he's with you, he's present with you. If you believe that, I mean, if you actually believe that, then yeah, yeah, you're gonna, your fear will be alleviated, you will have comfort, you will have peace, you will have joy, but the question is, how can we know that it's true? Because people might hear that and say, well, it's easy to, to say and we read the Bible, but how can I trust? 
that Jesus is in control like that, that he is who he says he is, that he's done what he says he does, you know? How can we trust that? How can we be assured that Jesus' presence will actually alleviate fear, that he is present with us, that, that he actually is stronger than our circumstances, that he'll bring us out of the slew of despond when we cry out for mercy? And the answer in the text is, if the I am who I am is standing before you, very God of very God, even in the midst of terror, his presence will alleviate fear because of the nature of who he is and therefore the reason he stepped into the world. Jesus came to step into the storm we created. This miracle is so much more than the miracle. It teaches us who he is. What he does teaches us who he is over and over again. It gives us a perfect expression, you know, he stepped in, he came in order to step into the storm that we created, a perfect expression of both who Jesus is and what he did by becoming flesh and stepping into a broken and sinful world. You know, when, the, when, when we rebelled against God, he could have just said, fine. I'll, I'll end it and I'll start again. And stayed up in heaven and stayed far removed from sin and destruction and chaos of this world. How can we trust God in the midst of the storms, you know? How can we trust him in the midst of all the, of the suffering and chaos around, around us? We trust him not by knowing exactly what the reasons are that we're suffering. We trust him rather in knowing that God must have a good reason for allowing it because he was willing to do just that, to step into the storm, the chaos we created, the chaos of our own making and rejecting him. And to take the storm upon himself. So that we could be safe ashore with him. To take the storm upon his shoulders at the cross. So that by trusting in him. We might find ourselves safe on land again in his presence. We might have joy to bring him on the boat. That we might, that we might have joy to be in his presence with him through the storm knowing that he will bring us up. He bore the penalty of sin for us, standing in our place that we might have faith in what he's done and therefore have life and joy and peace in him as the disciples have life, not dying in the storm. They have joy to welcome Jesus into the boat. They have peace by finding themselves on shore again. And you know, when he comes again, when Jesus comes again to make all things new, do you remember what the book of Revelation tells us when we preached through this? It's getting further and further away, right? Like I can't just do this for the next five years. Remember Revelation? <laughs> now it's still relatively in the, in the, re, in the rear view mirror. Um, do you remember what it tells us? There will be no more sea. Revelation ends, there's no more sea. In other words, no more chaos, no more disorder, no more wickedness, no more evil, only life and joy and safety in Christ by way of his death and resurrection. And so we proclaim what he was willing to do in stepping into the storm we created every week when we come to the table. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us. Our bodies should have been broken. Our blood should have been shed. The wrath of God poured on us. Instead, it was poured on him that we might be reconciled to God. That's why he came into this world. And so we proclaim this to one another now. If you're a believer, I invite you forward to take these elements with you back to your tables, back to your pews. If, if you're not a believer this morning, 
just encourage you to come forward and don't take. This is a proclamation of what we believe, that we believe this. By taking it, we're making a proclamation of belief. But just observe and, and walk through with everyone else. But I invite you forward. Take these elements with you back to your seats.